0: What's going on, guys? This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors. Our first sponsor is blackriflecoffee.com. If you haven't heard of Black Rifle Coffee, you should. BlackRifleCoffee.com makes some of the best coffee in the world. A buddy of mine, former special operations veteran, owns and operates a company. One of my favorite is their Fit Fuel. I use it to uh, uh, kickstart my day, but also kickstart my workouts. I'm also a big fan of the fact they have Coffee Ghee and MCT organic coffee, even the complete mission fuel kit where you get the different variations from silencer smooth to just black. I mean, blackriflecoffee.com, they do a good job at uh, bringing the best coffee straight to your doorstep. Make sure when you guys check out, you use the coupon code philcraft 20 to save 20%. That's one of the biggest coupon codes that we offer direct from Black Rifle Coffee. Thanks, uh, Black Rifle Coffee for supporting Philcraft survival. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Kill Cliff. You know, Kill Cliff is a company that makes energy drinks, Ignite, Endure, Recover. It's all variations to kickstart your workout, sustain your endurance, and then the vitamins that are necessary for recovery. One of my favorites is the Cherry Limeade. I used that prior to uh, rolling with Chad Robichaud and Raul at the shop also, I make sure we uh, take in the endure. it's like a, a jacked up endurance drink that's going to allow you to sustain energy with the right amount of carbohydrates, lemon limes, my favorite in that, and then post-recover. In fact, post-living, you know, just going through the day, anything that I'm doing, the Recover is a real good drink um, just to get your vitamins in. Uh, I like that blackberry lemonade. That's one of my favorites. What's cool about Kill Cliff, too is they're, they're support supporters and advocates of veteran uh, and op, uh, owned and operated business, but also they take parts of, of the uh, profit and um, donate them directly to the Navy Seal Foundation. If you didn't know it, Kilcliff was founded um, by a Navy Seal. So, the Navy SEAL Foundation provides immediate and ongoing support and assistance to the Navy Special Warfare, that's NSW community, and its families, which is a really big deal. Um, big fans of Killcliffe and their mission, always supporting um, their, their mission to provide help and assistance to any of the families uh, that have been affected, especially with uh, uh, killed in action and casualty, casualties of war. Uh, I, I appreciate it. If you guys uh, want to support uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation, check them out at NavySealFoundation.org, and make sure you check out Killcliff, killcliffe.com. Also, this podcast is brought to you by triarchsystems.com. Good friends of ours in the good old state of Texas. Um, I run their Glock 43 for my everyday carry. Everyday carry is super important to, important to me. Also, more important than that is what I carry has to be reliable. I don't care about the aesthetics, man. I'm not into fancy things. Uh, But by default, these guys just make great utility, durable functioning uh, weapon systems and pistols, carbines, rifles. Uh, But more importantly, they focus on the utility and outside of the aesthetic. But it just so happens that their guns just look amazing as well. Make sure you use Fieldcraft at checkout on Systems.com. Dot .com to save 5% on checkout. Hey guys, I got the uh unique opportunity at Overland Expo West in um, Flagstaff, Arizona. I ran into a buddy of mine, I knew he was going to be out there. We served together in special operations. Um this guy has a myriad of experiences through the full spectrum, we typically call it full spectrum of warfare and special ops, working his way from a private in uh, the Ranger Regiment. Uh, all the way up to uh, becoming one of the most uh, elite counterterrorism operators in the world. Um, and then full circle uh, did a lot of research and develop and test and evaluation of equipment that's important and critical to special operations. I caught up with my good friend Chuck Pressburg from Press Check Consulting. Make sure you guys give him a follow and a shout um, at Press Check Consulting. Um, which is his social media handles and also all his uh, all of his other handles as well. Chuck is an amazing and humble warrior that's been through a lot, and we got the opportunity to catch up with him at Overland Expo and talk about one of the missions that he was part of. His platoon was actually involved in Roberts Ridge. Um, I, I won't spoil it for you. I'll just kick it off and then uh, enjoy the podcast and stay tuned for much much more from uh, my interviews with Chuck. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Craft Survival Podcast. It's your host, Mike. I am still at Overland Expo 2019, and it's been a good time so far. I've done tons of podcasts, but um, this podcast is going to be one of my favorite podcasts because got to getting to catch up with a buddy, Chuck Pressberg. Um He's at the Emerson and the Lightforce booth, and ran into him, and off on a whim, we here we are inside of the tent. So thanks, Chuck, for taking the time, man.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man.
0: So, hey, you know, a lot of guys, I grew up in special operations. They've uh, been in several groups, done a whole bunch of stuff in, in the realm of special operations. Uh, but the guy sitting across from me has done so much for this country and has um, so many experiences, it's hard to narrow them down in a one-hour podcast. But I want you guys to hear some of the, some of the things that he's done in his uh, lifetime, but also get some uh, – good education on kind of the tactical space and some of his experiences and uh, being a tactician. I've known Chuck for years and I remember it being a young, uh, staff sergeant who was just sucking up knowledge from everybody I could. He was one of the guys I paid, paid the most attention to. In fact, he was at the time, which is hell, 13 plus years ago. He was a, a, a master sergeant at the time, uh, highly respected in the special operations community. And, um, so for me to get to sit across from him is still, um, um, an opportunity and something that i'm always humbled by so um chuck let's let's start out man i, I just want to let's start from the basics the beginnings Um uh, you you had a long career in special operations and um you got your start in ranger battalion right correct yep you, this just walk us through kind of your experiences you know starting out kind of uh leading up to the point that you're you're at now we have a, we have the time to talk about it so let's kick it off
1: sure um you know my uh my dad was a, a cop and my mom was a nurse and so i kind of got raised in a household where there was a you know a calling to service service of others over yourself and uh i wanted to be a cop and kind of follow in my dad's footsteps and uh I think I was just drawn to the military probably around in fifth grade or whatever. And by the time I was in high school, like I knew that even if it was a stepping stone to get into law enforcement, to have basic job experience, that I was going to serve in the military. Uh, during my high school, I did a lot of research, uh, looked at a lot of different organizations, and I settled on the Ranger Battalion uh option because it was the only one that the recruiters could guarantee at that time there was no sf baby program in effect there was no seal pipeline uh it was the only uh entry-level special operations organization where if i passed all of the gates the recruiter could guarantee me assignment to a special operations unit and i had had so many people that were out of the military that were disenfranchised or whatever and said if you can't get in writing it's not going to happen i had heard all the horror stories about dudes falling out of, of various pipelines or timing issues or injuries or whatever and uh so i took the sure thing well not not exactly a sure thing but uh i knew that if i delivered that the government was going to deliver on their side of that bargain so um i uh, signed up just before panama on the delayed entry program i signed up in november we jumped into panama in december i finished high school and then i left for basic training at the end of the following summer about three weeks after saddam invaded kuwait uh which led to desert shield desert storm uh i was uh in the, uh, one station unit training pipeline during that desert shield buildup for, for you younger guys, uh, we deployed a force over there to the desert over seven months that is larger than our active duty army today. We, we put over half a million, uh, troops in the field over that buildup period prior to the invasion of and liberation of Kuwait. And, uh, I truly kind of felt it at Fort Benning, being on this wartime footing, every starship, that's the barracks that we that we went to basic and, and infantry school in, uh, was full. And you were just passing, companies marching back and forth. Sand Hill was, was just packed at Fort Benning. Uh, graduated uh, infantry school beginning of December, and anybody that has any uh, Fort Benning or, or Army uh, DoD experience, they know that, that we have a holiday exodus where everybody goes home, even if you're in ranger school, you're going to take a break in between your cycles and you're going to go back for leave. So uh, there was a rumor going on that they were going to cancel Christmas exodus because of the war, and they were going to continue training through December. Uh, that that rumor did not codify I was sent home on leave and this is before cell phones I actually had to fill out a Western Union telegram sent to my address telling me to report back to Benning and I went home for a Christmas leave and less than a week later the telegram arrived uh, summoning me back to Benning I did the first two week long airborne school conducted since World War II Uh, And we worked until after nine o'clock every night and we worked over the first weekend and we did all of ground and tower week in that first week and weekend and Monday of week two, they were throwing us out of airplanes, Uh, the guys that graduated airborne school with me uh, that were unassigned airborne or whatever, they were all assigned to the 82nd, they were issued their desert issue, and they were shipped directly to Saudi Arabia and assigned as replacements to the 82nd. And they actually saw their first duty station, Fort Bragg, after the war was over. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, Seeing my, my airborne buddies getting DCUs and bayonets and gas masks at Fort Benning to get on 141 Starlifters and fly over there to the desert. I had a different path. I went over to Rip. And I, uh, I did R.I.P. in January of 91 and then reported to my Ranger Battalion on Valentine's Day of, uh, of 91.
0: Now, the R.I.P. is the uh, Ranger Indoctrination Program, right?
1: Yeah, Ranger Indoctrination Program is a three-week-long course that's run by uh, the Ranger Training Detachment of the 75th Ranger Regiment, and it is designed to... Uh, to screen applicants coming into the regiment. It is a much more formalized process now and has changed names. And it's now the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. And it includes actual Training to prepare the uh, soldiers that are going to be rangers to actually be able to perform, and that that was a post 9/11 function where guys coming out of the pipeline were going immediately to squads and platoons that were deploying to combat, and there was no time to train them up on the ranger way of doing things. So things like explosive breaching, CQB, first aid, you know, the big four. Uh, uh, all of that is done in RASP, so the pipeline is much longer now, and the soldiers that come out of RIP are RASP are much more highly trained than than we were when we got out of the pipeline. So I got to Ranger Battalion on Valentine's Day, and uh, they got the warning order that day to deploy to combat. So I uh, actually missed the boat after all of that pipeline and everything. I ended up pulling gate guard at uh, the marshaling and deployment area at Hunt Army Airfield. I was assigned to first bat in Savannah. And uh, I, I pulled access control while a company plus essentially half the battalion uh, deployed over to um, to the CENTCOM AOR to support uh, combat operations and support a desert storm. So that was my first missed opportunity of many 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 missed opportunities in my 26 years of of being the bridesmaid and never the bride so uh so after so after that um i know um getting to the
0: g watt um obviously you had a lot of experience going being in ranger regiment and leading up and working yourself through the ranks and then we get to nine eleven. What 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 happened after nine uh, eleven? As you can recall, it like right after the towers were hit, uh, was there a spin up? What was the process?
1: Yeah, um, I, re- I remember remember nine eleven very clearly. Uh, I was in the ranger dining facility, and uh, our ranger battalion senior medic, who had been one of the platoon medics in the battle of the Black Sea in Somalia, he had he had come over to First Bat to take over the aid station, uh, and the and the medical platoon. Um, Doc Black was coming out of the dining facility, and I was coming in after PT, and he asked, uh, what do you think about the, the plane hitting the, the tower or whatever? And I was like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. And directly behind the headcount, there was a TV, and we were looking at the television and kind of speculating on whether it was a suicidal guy or a tragic mishap or whatever. And while we were discussing it, the second plane uh, impacted and uh and the entire ranger dining facility went dead silent and then without a word everybody just stood up and put their trays in and started running back to their platoons because we knew that we were under attack uh the day was very very hectic half of the ranger battalion was was over uh, seized in an exercise and they were they were trapped trying to get back when they shut the airspace down and they were grounded in, uh, in the UK and it took 24 hours to get the battalion commander and the rest of the battalion assembled. But at the time I was working in the three shop as the uh, Ranger Force Modernization NCO in charge of all the R&D and fielding within the battalion waiting for a platoon. I was a uh, freshly pinned seven and, and waiting for a platoon to come open. And uh, in the days and weeks after that, we saw the buildup. Uh, our sister battalion, third battalion, jumped into Objective Rhino, uh, kicking off uh, major combat operations in Afghanistan uh, after the pilot teams had gone in with the uh, the Northern Alliance. And uh, then we got word that we were going to relieve them uh, at the end of December, and we were going to relieve them with a single rifle company. Uh, the company that was chosen had a platoon sergeant that was questionable, and the decision was made that they were gonna go ahead and uh, remove him. And I was brought in by the battalion commander and told, uh, we need we need a E-7 with mobility experience. You're not the top, uh, you're not next in line on the OML to take a platoon, but you can fight an RSOF platoon, Ranger Special Operations Vehicle platoon right now. You came from uh, an RSOF platoon as a weapons squad leader. Uh, so we are going to bump you to the head of the OML, and you're going to take this platoon into combat. And that was the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, I found out on a Monday that I was taking the platoon. And so I had from Thanksgiving until December to do any tweaks or changes or anything. Uh, and then we were going to go in and rip uh, relief in place third bat uh, just be- after Christmas. 26, 26 December was our rip date. So that's when I stepped foot on Bagram Air Base, was 26th uh, December, 2001. Um, how long was your first
0: rotation there in Afghanistan? And, and was that the, the time period that, because um, I know you were involved in Roberts Ridge. We, we had talked about it uh, a little bit. And um, you know if you could talk us through that, because I know if you guys don't know what Roberts Ridge is, uh, Chuck can, is gonna tell you, but um, it's a significant piece of not only just Ranger history, but military history. Uh, in fact, uh, in this little circle, uh, of of friends we all know a lot of people that were there and also people that were involved and um and Chuck I just want to get your first hand uh, knowledge of of everything that happened.
1: Yeah, so um the, the way that the special operations were organized uh, there in the time is you had uh, some joint task forces and then you had some joint special operations task forces. And I'm not going to get into command relationships, but the names were changing rapidly for OPSEC reasons. But uh, you had uh, basically a, a special operations task force in the north and one in the south. So you'll hear uh, TF Dagger, TF Bowie, TF Knife. You'll hear all these task force names thrown around in people's various books or whatever Uh, But as a general rule, uh, there was a limited amount of direct action capability in country at that time. So uh, when my ranger company deployed forward, we deployed a platoon to Kandahar and a platoon to Bagram. And uh, we left a platoon in reserve outside of the country. And that was our initial footprint. The ranger platoon in Bagram supported uh, all... um, requests for QRF from any special operations element even though they were not directly working with the ODAs or or what have you. And and essentially, if anybody needed help, uh, everybody was sharing information and the Ranger platoon was kind of committed. Uh, I supported fifth group ODAs, uh, Texan call sign, uh, fifth group ODAs that were conducting operations. Anything that fell out of the sky, we responded to. Uh, We did eight CSARs in the uh, first rotation, which was uh, 120 days long. It was December to April. Um, so, my platoon had QRF at, out of Bagram, QRF North, which was um, Bagram Air Base at the time, had about 550 troops on the entire airbase and there uh, five females. Uh, For those of you that have ever been to Bagram, you remember Disney Road. Disney Road was not even Disney Road because Disney had not been killed uh, clearing IEDs on the far side of the airbase yet. And the Northern Alliance that had taken the airfield as part of their negotiation wanted that road open so that the village on one side of Bagram could trade with the village on the other side of Bagram. So when I got there... uh, afghans on bicycles with with no tires just riding on rims with ak's slung across their back had free reign up and down disney during daylight hours and at 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 night an american unit at the southern end of bagram would put up a roadblock and uh a Brit uh, Royal Marines Commando, 40 Commando Company, they would lock down the north side of Disney and from sundown to sunup, it would be a controlled installation, but it was essentially an open base uh, in the beginning. So it was truly the Wild West.
0: You guys' mission was, um, for you guys don't uh, know the acronym, Quick Reaction Force, the QRF. So if anything happened in that area of operation for for the, I'm assuming that a task force, you guys' job was to, quick react and respond to them.
1: Yeah. Essentially people would start reporting up through their chain of command that they were in trouble. And then people would start cross communicating at the, like the theater level, like, well, who's available, who has aircraft, who can go respond to this. Um, uh, and so combat search and rescue is one of those things that we did. We linked up with elements of, uh, of special tactics from the Air Force uh, pararescue and combat control elements. And we would go out in rotary wing aircraft, usually two Chinooks from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, mm-hmm. and we would respond to a downed aircraft aircraft. Um, some of the ones that, that I remember were uh, an M, a Marine Corps MH-53 that was bringing in FOB uh, buildup material, HESCOs and concertina wire and things like that. They crashed, and we had to go do equipment and body recovery on that. We recovered a uh, C-130 that flew into the side of two C-130s that flew into the side of mountains. One Marine Corps, one Special Operation C-130 recovered their crews. From that, uh, 101st Chinook flipped upside down and brown out. We recovered people from that. And then there was also outstation from the interagency and, and DOD elements. When they would get into a Troops in Contact and they had guys wounded, we would sometimes fly out there and pick up their casualties because they didn't have theater um, medevac assets. There was no theater medevac. So if a safe house got uh, shot up or whatever and there were, us citizens that worked for various elements of the federal government uh that were hurt we would uh potentially go recover them so that that was that was kind of day-to-day life just sitting around uh, sleeping literally sleeping with our boots on in the beginning until everybody's feet smelled so bad that the squad leaders came to me and said, we, we've, we've got to be able to let our guys take their boots off to, to sleep. We were uh, we were sleeping in our uniforms and boots because we never knew when the SATcom or the phone was gonna ring and they were gonna launch us out with about 10 minutes warning.
0: And you got so you obviously didn't have the time and then um, what you know when you have those experiences of you know obviously personnel recovery and quick reaction forcing, uh, forces on the ground. What what made the morning of uh, the the incident in Roberts Ridge different than everything else? Do you remember that like distinctly the. The differences.
1: Yeah, I I was not in Bagram when the call happened. I was uh, actually, my section had been moved down to Kandahar. The whole platoon had been moved down to Kandahar to conduct uh, live fire sustainment training and check zero on weapons. There was very limited live fire capability at Bagram. We were essentially shooting into what looks like an action berm at a USPSA match. And that's what they call a survivability position. And it's a three-sided dirt berm that they parked SU-25 ground attack aircraft in. And that was the only range on Bagram. And you had to actually go across the active flight line to get to it. So you had to get a radio and air traffic control and all that stuff. So uh, other than about a 25-yard flat range, we had not done any live fire training training um, for three, for almost three months. Uh, so it's beginning of March, and or late February, beginning of March, and the battalion commander orders us to start shifting platoons around so that we never lost our seamless QRF coverage, but that the platoon in the north could share in the Tarnak Farms Terrace Training Camp live fire area uh, to do explosive training and and live fire exercises. So a piecemeal kind of chess move of moving half a platoon, which we'll call a section, we were able to fight as an entire platoon or as an A section only or a B section only. Uh, I was in charge of B section. My platoon leader was in charge of A section when we were uh, doing split ops. So we had to relieve a section, move, relieve another element, which would relieve our other section. And it took about 24 to 48 hours to move the platoon from Bagram to Kandahar or Kandahar to Bagram. The morning of March uh, 4th, the evening of March 3rd, we were halfway through that set piece. We had completed a week of platoon live fires. And uh, my A section had returned up north to relieve a section of another platoon to send them down to relieve me. And that's when the call... Uh, to support a, uh, a recce insertion uh, gone bad came out. Um, I was awoken from Kandahar and told that uh, a reconnaissance element had, had gotten into a troops in contact and that the QRF North had been committed to go in like a Mike Force style and reinforce uh, that recce element on the ground and that during that insertion, uh, a bird had made a hard landing and that they had lost communication with the elements that were on that bird, uh, whereabouts of the second aircraft were unknown at that time. And that started the cascade events that, uh, is, is formally kind of known as, as Roberts Ridge now that in three books have been written about, (coughs) excuse me. Um, so, uh, what, what essentially happened was, uh, the Ranger QRF from North, consisting of of some of A Section, was committed uh, into the fight on 247s. Uh, due to the altitudes involved, the um, the allowable cargo load for passengers was only 10, 10 bodies per Chinook. Uh, there uh, there's a bunch of lessons learned that came out of that. Um, back in the day, they used to plan uh plan weights for soldiers and they would say okay we're gonna say each ranger weighs 250 pounds in their gear knowing that some in the machine gun sections were heavier and some of the light riflemen were lighter than that and they were using an averaging uh the loads uh on the two aircrafts were not not the same not even close and what happened was uh Uh, Carl Gustav bazooka teams were left behind snipers were left behind uh, of the rifle squad that went in on the aircraft that was shot down they were not able to bring either riflemen or one of their grenadiers so it was squad leader two team leaders two saw gunners and one grenadier is what that that rifle squad consisted of Um, uh, on that aircraft they had a combat search and rescue element that was what we call embedded CSAR. They were from a rescue squadron out of Moody Air Force Base, and it it was one controller and two J's and a 200-pound box called a REDS kit, which had extraction equipment in it. Um, They also had an air mission commander in that aircraft that flew in a jump seat. Uh, the second aircraft did not have any of those people, so no 200-pound box, no three Air Force guys, no extra night stalker officer, yet the ACL given was also 10 bodies. So there was a combat power disparage, uh, disparity that happened on there because in the haste of the air planners, they were not looking at, at, at all of the numbers, and, and since then, uh, the customer, the ground guys in there uh, in, in all recent conflicts since then have had a much more active role in load planning and weight calculation and things like that. Because of that lesson exactly. learned. Exactly. Oh,
0: wow. I, didn't, I never do that. So, yeah.
1: So now that's why now, uh, if you've ever been downrange in an ODA or, or whatever, you're getting on a scale with all of your kit and you're reporting actual weight to your boss. It's because of that negotiation of how much weight can we put on this aircraft. It, 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 we're checking math and we didn't used to check the math. We would just blindly accept whatever was being told to us. And in that specific engagement, I'm not trying to be a hindsight as 2020 Monday morning quarterback, but uh, three Air Force guys, a Night Stalker, and a 200-pound box is a two-man sniper team and a two-man bazooka team. And that's a huge amount of combat power uh, that, that could have gone in on chalk too uh, that, that was just not on the ground. So um, was the
0: initial uh, issue, because you mentioned hard landing, was it actual hard landing and
1: then? No, yeah. no. What, what had happened was uh, when the QRF went in, and, and you guys can read the books, I, because I wasn't there, I, I, I don't want to you know, uh, talk over guys that were actually there, but essentially the reconnaissance element that was up on the hill Uh, Their position was untenable and they were being overrun. They had multiple wounded and they made the call to break contact and give up altitude for distance. So they grabbed their wounded um, and they started to depart the objective area. Um, They had what they thought was one KIA on the hill and they still had their missing guy, which is why they went back in there uh, in the first place. Um, It turns out uh, that the the miss the KIA was bl- uh, uh, allegedly knocked unconscious, and and he he uh, regained consciousness without without the rest of the recce element there, so the recce element was removing their casualties, and the uh, individual that was uh, Air Force, he was the one that was talking and reporting, and so when he was uh, uh, allegedly killed in action. Um, that that reconnaissance elements communication with higher stopped. And so the QRF was sent in, and we oftentimes flying QRF missions, we got zero ground picture. I literally launched on QRFs where our intelligence guy drove up with a one to 100,000 scale paper map with a grid and a circle and handed it to me on the ramp. And that's when I knew where I was going, and I had no idea what i was doing when i got there i didn't know if i was going to link up with an oda i didn't know if i was going to fly into a downed helicopter i was flying the platoon to a grid and we were getting out and sorting it out and so our sops essentially ended at a secure pz posture when the bird landed we would get out fan out take a knee let the birds flush and then if there was if there were people there We would go talk to them or or shoot them or whatever was needed. But we would figure out what they needed us to do when we landed and conducted a link-up. Had no call signs, had no idea who anyone was or whatever. So I don't know how much info uh, my A section actually had going into that. I'm pretty sure they knew that they were going to be they anticipated flying into a tight cigar-shaped perimeter of U.S. soft personnel in an active gunfight, and then flooding off the choppers, reinforcing the line with more firepower, and then Taking the taking the uh, advantage and, and overpowering the enemy force. That I think that's what they thought they were going into. And
0: that helicopter landed in the middle of a gunfight, essentially. Uh,
1: no, the the reconnaissance element was able to break contact, and the enemy had time to reset. So they thought they were flaring to land in the middle of a secured tight perimeter, but they flared to land in the middle of interlocking fields of fire of a bunker network. Uh, a Chechen. Uh, Al Qaeda operative with an RPG-7 came up out of a spider hole, launched a round that hit just over the gunner station on the Chinook on the right-hand side. Uh, th- the the cone-shaped charge threw frag up into the drive mechanism of the chopper, and the chopper flopped into the snow on about a 15-degree, 20-degree bank, uh, and, and uh, from an altitude of about 15 feet, uh, and then. Another bunker about ten yards away from the aircraft with a belt-fed PK machine gun uh, uh, opened up on the ramp and tried to basically do an, a Save It, Private Ryan reenactment. Um, the there was a delay in the guys getting out allegedly. Um, at you know at thirty seconds out, dudes are up on a knee, their hands are on their safety lines. When the bird flopped into the snow, guys fell down. And uh, then as people started to scramble out, there was guys that could not find the end of their safety line. And none of the safety lines, uh, as a matter of fact, we did not even have safety lines. We uh, were still using tubular nylon. So guys were having to activate quick releases in their tubular nylon uh, slings and everything. That was another lesson learned that came out of this was the Ranger Regiment started issuing rigger belts with triangle links and bungee uh, safety line hook-ins with quick releases as a result of this incident. So uh, Chinook's down. um, The senior machine gunner uh, from my weapon squad was was attached to a section he was incapacitated and, and killed uh we believe i believe from the rpg explosion if not from a random bullet uh and then guys started piling out of the back of the aircraft the first two individuals off of the ramp were the squad leader and uh one of the team leaders and uh the team leader was struck um Bradley Kroos he was struck with a PK machine gun and he made it about three steps off the ramp uh, and collapsed in the snow his squad leader who turned the opposite direction caught a PK uh, round directly in his back plate about an eighth of an inch from the bottom of the seam of his plate Um, and then The saw gunner that was following the team leader out had his saw shot out of his hands. His saw received three bullet impacts. One round went in the side of his laser and uh, ricocheted down through the gas tube of his saw, which destroyed the gas pressure and made the saw inoperable. Another round hit the side of the receiver and ricocheted down through the 200-round box drum. And then the third round uh, bisected, went through both sides of the nylon sling that were around his neck, but he didn't get a scratch on him. Uh, the 203 gunner that was coming out of the aircraft behind him turned to face the threat. He was struck by a bullet just below the brim of his helmet. Um, and he died and fell down basically where the tail gunner's uh, gunner station was on the ramp of the 47. The squad leader was spun around by the impact of the bullet. And he was able to identify the PK gunner. And uh, he dispatched him with an M4 with a M68 aim point Comp M uh, shot, and, and that stopped. The uh, the wall of lead that was coming out and allowed everybody else to be able to pile out of the aircraft.
0: Now, when when this is going down, um, this is happening with the first bird, correct? This is the first That's bird, correct? And how do you get word of this?
1: And where, where's
0: your location at?
1: So, um, the second aircraft lost comms with the first aircraft, and they did a circle around, and then they ended up going to a local. Uh, Ford arming and refueling point which was about a 10 minute flight away in a a little town called Gardez and uh, they landed at Gardez they understood what was going on Uh, they ended up cross-loading some stuff and then they went back in there Uh, And they offset uh, at at an LZ that was about 3,000 feet below and about 800 yards offset horizontally from the the crash site at the top of the mountain. So
0: they got to fight uphill. There's anticipation that this is the safest place to land, and now it's an uphill fight.
1: Correct. And that LZ is also where the reconnaissance element was breaking contact down to to get extracted. Uh, so at some point during that phase, that's when I got alerted in Kandahar. I got woken up uh, and told that my, that they had lost contact with the A section, um, that they were sending a bird back in, and that I needed to get on a, uh, the next thing, smoking out of Kandahar, get up to Bagram and get on, uh, get on some QRF air and go out there and get my guys. So I spent the daytime of March 4th doing planes, trains, and automobiles, um, C-17 flight. And, and it was, it was just a nightmare. Uh, they did not have a seats out waiver. They, uh, aircraft had plenty of room, but they, they wouldn't let us sit on the floor. And we had to contact like CENTCOM level air people, uh, we're on Iridium phones talking back to our talk. They're talking back to Kuwait and, um, Qatar and places like that. And to get, a waiver that, so that the C seventeen crew would let us sit on the floor and hook into the hard points, uh, which is something that we do on AFSOC aircraft all the time. But
0: that's insanity. So you guys were getting lulled in movement just because of
1: standard operating procedures. And, and even when they finally did let us go, so so. In the big picture, um, guys and gals, this, this thing is going on during a large conventional operation called Operation Anaconda. And uh, the 101st Brigade had been in Kandahar and they had surged up to Bagram to link up with the 10th Mountain elements and then go into that valley. They had left behind their Q36 counter-battery radar and some other items that they did not think were, were necessary. And they were getting housed by enemy 120 82 and d30 howitzers that were on the reverse slope of this uh, valley so the c17 that i was catching a ride on had uh, q36 counter battery radar teams and humvees and crews and that's essentially it so that that c17 was of critical importance to the overall combat operation and we were just kind of strap hanging on it so even when we did get approval the afsa uh, the air force um flight engineers were so uncomfortable with the idea of safety uh, safety <coughs> lines that they sat us down in rows on the floor and put CGU 5000 car pound cargo straps across our laps and shackled us in like guys on a roller coaster ride so we were sitting five abreast with a cargo strap in our lap uh, is
0: this before because I remember all my deployments. We we're just laying on the floor like right. there's no issues. So th- this is before they got the education. I'm assuming in the in the and the war at the speed of war, realizing okay, this isn't a problem. This is right. will never be a problem.
1: So this is this is the danger of a peacetime military. Um, you know, I did I as I mentioned we did eight combat search and rescue missions. Uh, Roberts Ridge was the only one from enemy gunfire. Uh, when you held. Uh, our 90s clinton era military to a zero defect uh, environment risk aversion took over all aspects of training and essentially every person that deployed to combat after 9-11 sucked at their job Uh, they did not have enough ammo to shoot they didn't have enough fuel to drive the pilots were not allowed to do nap of the earth flight training uh, because if you bent an aircraft that was the end of your career and so our pilots uh sucked and our ground guys we sucked and we like what we just consider day-to-day awesomeness during the surge or you know whatever you want to call it like all of those things that you learn as a new sf guy on an oda of dudes that have two deployments we had to relearn all that and so i'm in this like right out of the gate this is the peacetime army this is what eight years of army drawdown has done uh you know the old rumsfeld saying that that ended up ruining his career is probably the most honest thing i've ever heard a politician say you go to war with the army you have not the army you wish you had and uh and that and i experienced it we experienced it we didn't know how to plan we didn't understand huge aspects of just they're just standard operating procedures in place all over the military that did not exist after 9-11 and we were just figuring it out on the fly so uh yes yeah, so these air force guys just they they were they were out there flapping and we were on the ground for probably two hours arguing back and forth uh, about while you know,
0: your boys are yeah, on the ridgeline, correct, and you're getting live feedback or feedback knowing correct. That they're in yes. some shit.
1: I had somebody contact me while I was still on the ground in Kandahar and said that they had received uh, satellite communications with the element on the ground and that there were six KIA and that they were still in contact. So that was the only update, and I did not know who those six KIA were. I mean, we had Air Force people on the ground, we had Army people on the ground, we had Navy people on the ground, we had Night Stalkers on the ground. Uh, so, uh, mathematically, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm like, yeah, probably not possible that six people could have died and, and it not be the pipe hitters from the Rangers that are, that are probably up there doing the heavy lifting and the gunfighting right now. So I have more than likely lost one of my guys or more. But I had no idea how many. Maybe all six were mine. Maybe none of them were mine. I didn't know.
0: Yeah, and just, let me reiterate this. This is, just, you know, he said the composition of his forces was A group and B group. A group led by his pl. B group led by himself. So these are your dudes. These yes. are literally your guys. Your platoon. Yes. Uh, and if you guys know the the army or the military, being a platoon daddy or platoon sergeant in any. Uh, unit that you know specializes in small unit tactics you're close to your dudes especially f- for the platoon daddy because you typically grew up around those guys and so uh what's the time in which you know you get lifted you get off the ground uh what's going back on uh at roberts ridge
1: um the the boys found a rock outcropping which is over by where the chechens Uh, Spider Hole had been, and they went to ground there. Um, The pilots had been shot through the cockpit during the crash by another gun position. Uh, They were both wounded. They activated the jettisons on the doors of the Chinook, and they basically flopped out into the snow. Uh, One of those pilots, ironically, had been in 1st Platoon, Alpha Company, 1st Ranger Battalion in 1979. And he is now a senior warrant in the 160th. And he got shot down flying his old Ranger platoon. And he has got bilateral gunshot wounds to the legs. He's got a gunshot wound to the wrist. And uh, one of my uh, saw gunners uh, had a bad leg. He had sustained RPG shrapnel and it it had... nicked a nerve and he was only able to crawl and he crawled forward to the in-flight refueling boom of the 47 with his saw and he laid down fire so that they could drag uh, the night stalkers back to the rear and essentially a casualty collection point started to uh, occur right there at the ramp of uh, the helicopter. Um, We only had about five guys that were still able to fight uh, the squad leader, the platoon leader, um, one of the team leaders, and our Air Force uh, TAC P, our JTAC. Uh, we had a controller on the ground that had come in with the embedded CSAR element that was not part of our, our group, and then we had a JTAC from the ASOS that was assigned to our Ranger company. So at uh, prior to nine eleven. 11 at like the SF groups, there was no soft JTAC program and there was one detachment of JTACs that supported the entire SF group. The Ranger Regiment has always had a kind of a larger uh, JTAC footprint than than the ODAs because the ODAs by nature used to go in, in just a couple at a time and those ASOS guys could flex. There weren't entire groups going forward. So we had... Uh, ever since I got to Ranger Battalion in 91, we had an Air Force ASOS JTAC for every rifle company in the regiment. So since we deployed a single company, we were able to take our entire JTAC section. And I had a JTAC assigned to my platoon. uh, And he went in with the with the platoon leader. So uh, when he came off the aircraft, he ran over to the controller who was putting his radio into operation. He took Uh, a scan real quick and saw how many guys were up and shooting and he he asked the controller are you going to fight or are you going to talk on the radio and the controller says i need to know somebody needs to know what's going on here the jtac dropped his rucksack next to the controller's rucksack and he said fine put my radio into operation two and my jtac ran up and got on the front line trace of our guys and he ended up firing over 400 rounds of 556 that day uh and then um acting as a lead trace spotter so the controller called all of the nine line casts and the jtac yelled back corrections about what the effects were on target so the controller and the jtac worked together to uh do all the subsequent casts that kind of uh the guys were bringing in they kind of did the broken arrow thing and started stacking assets overhead at one point they had Six, I think six different uh, fixed wing packages, everything from B1 bomb trucks to um, French Mirage fighters uh, started stacking up over the fight, Uh, but due to the belt buckle distance of the engagements uh, and this peacetime proficiency level of pilotry that we had coming into the fight. many of the assets checked out and and refused to drop the ordinance at the locations that they were being asked to do it cuz it was danger close I'm assuming yep. And so, so they, would, they would say, well, okay, if you can't go guns and you're about to go bingo fuel, you're out of here. Who's next in the stack? Oh, F-15s. Are you guys willing to do gun runs? We need guns and we need them on this angle. And so you can go in and read the books. That's, that's all like echelons over me. But uh, the amount and responsiveness of response that those controllers got during these bombing runs were truly personality driven. It was who was the lead seater, who was the flight lead, and how much risk were they willing to accept. And it it was hit or miss that day.
0: Wow, that's Um, incredible. And then uh, what's the uh, uh, disposition of the reconnaissance element that had started breaking contact?
1: They were... I think they were down to f- six guys and they had three wounded, one of which had a severe leg wound and ended up getting uh, his leg amputated. So they were doing like a buddy carry uh, deal and they were going down very steep terrain and very steep snow. With my chalk two guys, Which were led by my weapons squad leader. Uh, The weapons squad leader is the senior staff sergeant in the platoon and is third in charge of the entire platoon. The weapons squad leader by design is attached to a section so that there is a senior NCO that can advise and uh, help mentor the platoon leader in his conduct as the A section commander. Uh, So the weapons squad leader was the chalk leader on chalk two and as they were going up one finger Uh, or spur to the uh, the ridge line, the um, Navy uh, reconnaissance element was coming down a different spur. There was a Navy individual that inserted with them. He jumped on the helicopter in Gardez, and he, once he got eyes on his people, broke off from the Ranger group and uh, went overland down through the draw and back up to the other spur to assist in uh, recovery of the Navy assets. The rest of the chalk continued upward. I believe it was a three and a half hour ascent up the 3,000 feet. Um, At one point due to exhaustion, uh, the call was made to dump back plates out of armor and uh, they removed their, their back plates and threw them like discus off the side of the mountain, uh, trying to aim them towards boulder piles so they would smash the boron carbide ceramics and the plates would be useless uh, to the enemy. So there was, uh, so there was uh, some altitude sickness stuff going on and there was some uh, overloaded kit stuff happening.
0: Against so a lot of lessons learned, obviously, that kind of defined and shaped uh, how we fought, we fought uh, continuously in the GWAT, right? C-
1: correct. So the, uh, the the Eagle Industries uh, Special Forces Load Carriage System and Ranger Load Carriage System based on the Eagle MBav were uh, as a direct result of a requirement that I wrote immediately after uh, this engagement for a plate carrier system for uh, the Ranger Regiment. Uh, It was validated by the Regimental um, RS8 shop and then pursued by USASOC after my Ranger time. We probably don't have enough time to talk about it today. I went to USASOC G8, which is the the force modernization cell where I did science and technology R&D. So I actually caught the requirement that I wrote on the other end from the force provider uh, standpoint how many um, years later was that um 2003 oh wow so wow. yeah and uh so RLCS came out uh, my, our, our our secret guest in here uh his 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 shop uh his shop had a a very a good knack of keeping their ear to the ground and watching ranger requirements. Uh, the rangers also did the PVS fifteen at the same time, and so SF commands G five seven would watch the requirement float through, and they'd be like, "Hey, we need some dual two knots. Hey, we need play carriers." And uh, so thank they God would, for that because yeah,
0: <laughs> I hated the single <laughs> so,
1: so yeah, so the Cirrus Vest, uh, the Cirrus Vest transfer to SFLCS and the uh, getting rid of those stupid seven Bravos and Deltas off of the ODAs and mm-hmm. replacing them with fifteens to yep. round you guys out with that fourteen fifteen combo. Yep. Those were all ranger generated requirements that SF command said, Hey, that that basis of issue plan those are rookie numbers you got to bump them numbers up yeah that's awesome so yeah that's how you guys got all that good gear thank Um, you ranger regiment yeah man (laughs) uh so anyway back to the back to the fight the boys uh basically traded rounds with uh these bunkers that were in demanding positions over over at the crest of the ridge uh Remember I told you that the bazooka team got left behind. Mm -hmm. Now, I had law rockets. The Ranger Regiment was the only regular unit in the military that still had M-72A2 Vietnam-era rockets. And they were in our war stock. Our track vehicles. Yeah, our war stock. uh, Our war stock rockets had never been fired our training rockets had long since expired uh, like years before but now we're in combat and we have these laws that uh light anti-tank weapons these 66 millimeter rockets but they're so old they have no way to put any type of night vision equipment on them and then we had the at4 84 millimeter disposable rocket I did sign for and bring 10 extra lasers and 10 extra brackets that put a Picatinny rail on them. But we determined kind of early on that the accuracy and lethality of the Carl Gustav and its versatility was just better. And I actually Mm -hmm. had two Gustav teams and an extra staff sergeant, the Gustav section sergeant assigned to our strike force, our 65-man element I, I i guess i should quit calling it a platoon it was a 65 man element uh, that i was that i was responsible company for minus yeah. yeah i had a mortar section i had a sniper section i had most of the at section uh plus this joint component with an air force guy uh so anyway uh we made the call about three weeks into the deployment that team leaders and squad leaders would quit carrying disposable rockets and we would carry extra rounds for the bazooka because the bazooka teams were just more accurate. Everybody loves them some HE goose. You know, you dial the distance and it's like a flying Claymore and we weren't seeing trucks and armored. We weren't seeing armored vehicles. We were seeing light skinned vehicles and personnel. The flying Claymore was much better for personnel and trucks. So, This is where I kind of in hindsight, not to second guess my guys, I kind of wish I had been on the ground when we were loading those two QRF aircraft because when the bazooka teams left, all these team leaders like, woohoo, I don't have to carry a rocket for the bazooka but they had left the laws and AT-4s back in our QRF tent. So they were unable to regain a rocket capability when the bazooka team got cut from the manifest. As a result, my boys ended up on that mountain without any rocket launchers. Mm. The most casually producing weapon, HE, high explosive wise that they had, was the Grenadier's 203, who which was around his neck on his dead body in the aircraft. Ugh. A uh, Night Stalker crew chief, got the silver star because he was sent into the aircraft through a a hail of machine gun fire. The rangers laid down a base of fire for him, and they said, we need that grenade launcher. And they launched, they had him go over there so that a ranger didn't have to recover it off of his dead buddy's body. Mm. But this Night Stalker crew chief in his desert tan flight suit ran through the snow, went onto that aircraft, and uh, recovered the 203 grenade launcher and then opened up the Molly one quart canteen pouches that my grenadier was carrying his his loose, uh, what we call golden goose eggs or the, the 40 millimeter HE projectiles. He loaded all of those little zippered, stupid zippered pockets on a flight suit. He started putting HE rounds in wow. all of those zippered pockets and then ran back through the snow with the grenade launcher Got down behind the rocks and handed the grenade launcher to uh, one of the rangers and said, "I don't know what to do with this. Here, take this." Wow! And started trying to use the grenade launcher.
0: And I'm, I'm assuming at the at the point in which the helicopter crashed, you lost the function because of the power to the miniguns.
1: Correct. Uh, that, that were on the. Gun. That is another. Uh, that is another uh, change that took years to happen. Mm-hmm. But the miniguns were AC powered and ran off of the power unit of the helicopter um ground mini guns like on uh um swift water brown water, navy boats and all that stuff they are dc powered and run off of a battery and then that battery trickle charges off of the ac power of its mm. boat yep. so post roberts ridge the 160th uh, attempted to convert their d their ac mini guns to dc but because the helicopters are still owned by the army the air program shops at Fort Rucker and um, Huntsville, they had to sign off on it. So the Air 160th owns multiple types of airframes. And on some of their helicopters, they could get DC miniguns sooner because program office Chinook's like, yep, sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Program office Blackhawks, like, we don't know what's going to do to power draw to be trickle charging DC. No, you can't do that to your helicopters. And they Army bureaucracy got in the way. So the Black Hawks they did not get DC minigun capability for several years after the Chinooks did. But at this time, nobody had DC capability. So when the bird crashed, the miniguns were dead. And the 160th guys went back in there to recover 7.62, belted ammo out of the minigun cans and run it back to uh, my platoon's 240 gunners multiple times during the day.
0: Wow. So the entire crew of that... uh
1: chinook survived the 160 of the guys uh phil speedtack another one of the unsung heroes he was the right side uh um minigunner he identified the chechen when he popped up out of the spider hole uh called it out over ics and then his minigun ammo and the rpg7 rocket passed each other in flight and he tuned up that chechen uh uh, with minigun, and then the explosion of the HE round landing uh, uh, over his gunner station uh, c- killed him. Oh, wow. But he he took that that warrior that that enemy warrior out of the fight, and that guy was ready to bring it. If anybody understands uh, how deadly um, some of Al Qaeda's Western-influenced yeah. guys are, mm-hmm. um, that individual was switched on enough that he had recovered Neil Roberts' PVS-15s and had them around his neck on 550 cord, and he was wearing Neil Roberts' Gore-Tex pants. Uh, So this guy was ready to bring it. Uh, He caught a minigun to the upper torso, which unfortunately, disabled his RPG seven which my guys recovered it and uh, for a second wanted to use against the bunker complex because they didn't have their own bazookas but it was uh, it was riddled with 762 and it was not usable Mm. as a result of Phil's accurate minigun fire to the right side of the aircraft.
0: How long were your boys on the the um, when you know from infill uh, things went bad uh, to the time that they were extracted? How long were they on the ground for?
1: I believe it was 16 hours. That's incredible. They came in just after sun up, and uh, recovery helicopters came in sh- uh, sometime after sundown.
0: Now, I know you, we had talked about it a little bit, and I don't know if you want to want to cover it, but um, there was a a moment in which there, the casualties were recovered, and then um, uh, you, obviously, as a platoon sergeant, when looking at accountability... And taking care of your boys uh, want to ensure, obviously, uh, that everybody's taken care of. And um, you told me that you didn't even have the chance to identify your guys. Um, and there was no period of time in which you could even reflect on what was happening because y- you were operating at the speed of war. And you, you didn't have time for that that uh, morning or that reflection. Um, how, how did that happen and, and how fast was that cycle? And what was
1: that like? Yeah. Um. So the, the initial plan for the wounded was that they were going to uh, come off of the hill. They were going to go to that Gardez location that was only about 10 minutes away. And there was a forward surgical element uh, that was um, staged there. And then they were going to fly them out on a C-130, probably st- straight to Landstuhl. Uh I can't remember where the C-130 was going after. I don't believe it was going to Bagram. Uh, The C-130, the Gardez strip is an unimproved dirt runway. The C-130 went off into the sand and got bogged down so that the command center in a very it was the right move they made the call hey forget that we're not going to bring casualties to a place where they don't have uh the ability to get out we're going to just go ahead uh fuel up the chinooks and send them up to bagram and then the forward surgical team at bagram can package them up and get them out to launch stool. Uh, I had made it to Bagram, I had gotten on aircraft, I had made it as far forward as a forward arming refueling point called Texaco. Texaco was not Gardez, it was in another location. Texaco was a FARP set up by the 101st, and it was gassing all of the troop carrying uh, Chinooks and all of the Apaches. Over 10 Apaches went into that valley, and they uh, got shot up bad uh, to to support the 10th mountain and 101st so everybody had drama this day you guys are catching a glimpse of one little firefight but up and down this valley uh there was heroism of light infantry 11 bravos uh at high altitudes with heavy loads fighting al-qaeda
0: fighting uphill
1: and uh yes everywhere and taking indirect fire. And so the Apaches were trying to locate these gun positions. They're flying up and down the valley in broad daylight, and they're just taking rounds and taking rounds. And they're going back to Texaco. They're getting rockets and guns and gas, and they're going back into that hornet's nest. So I landed at Texaco. Another element was already there. And uh, they told us that uh, Hire had decided that they were going to be the primary for extraction and that they were taking my helicopters. against uh uh, against my uh
0: this is not another ranger unit this is another special operations correct
1: okay and so uh i was left at texaco with b section and a section of another platoon Uh, so I, i was back up to strike force size strength and i was i was the overall in charge of the two elements. Um, and we remained at Texaco. And if the extraction had gone bad, the Chinooks were going to come back and pick us up. And then we were going to go ahead and it force in on the LZ. I,
0: I know this is an important in the story, ultimately speaking, but how did that make you feel? Were you, I mean, were you upset? Because it, it just seems to me, you know, the ground element that's that took the casualties, and obviously there's no other players in the game um, but the, the the time they told you to stand down what, what did that
1: would that feel like to you it was it was devastating I, I was completely devastated um, It was cold it was dark it was windy and and I'm just standing with my guys in a tight perimeter on the side of this Ford refueling place and birds are coming in and out in the darkness um, and I was just left to my own. Thoughts about speculating and who who do I know that's dead right now? Who which which of the guys that I'm responsible for is no longer on planet Earth? Um,
0: and we, I know that that kind of thing. Um, and I, I've experienced this in, in microcosms, uh, nothing this uh, significant, uh, but it kind of shapes your decision making, obviously, for the rest of your your career. I mean, when. When things, you know, you obviously became a senior member of Special Operations Command, and uh, when it came time for you to make those decisions, I'm assuming it shaped a lot of the way that you thought and the why a lot of the way that you um, operated uh, afterwards.
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I was dangerously young for the job that I was given. I turned, uh, I turned thirty, no, I turned twenty nine. I turned twenty nine years old. Uh, the month before we deployed so i'm a 29 year old in charge of a 65 man strike force um or two ic for a 65 man strike force and um that yeah, just that real quick if you don't
0: understand like for rank and time and service especially uh back then um i made e7 at 30 so he made e7 at 29 and i was fast tracking um so if you're making rank that fast to be a platoon sergeant in charge of a platoon of of pipe hitters and, uh, the Ranger regiment
1: that's young. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. So, um, essentially that was the last, uh, yeah, that was the last, uh, time that I ever wanted to be in charge. And when you, when you, our paths ch- crossed later on, as you know, I was, I was going back to, I was going to a place where I could be, uh, a a, a a regular guy. I had no desire to ever be in charge of large massed amounts of men and stand with my hands on my hip and tell people what to do. I just wanted to be in charge of my kit bag and my gun box and and go do work. And so it it fundamentally changed the entire second half of my army career where I was seeking out other positions uh, where I could be a doer and, and not a leader because right out of the gate, I got bloodied and I lost three guys. And I had to look at their families in the eyes and say, I was responsible for your son and, and I did not bring him back home alive. And it, it affected me for the rest of my career.
0: You know, um, loss You know, loss is part of the um, the game we decided to play in a lot of senses. Uh, but when you're in a position of leadership, it changes the uh, paradigm. And, and especially in self reflection and, and kind of our position in the game. Um, and when you take on that responsibility, you you lost guys that um, you felt you obviously had, you know whether it was a positioning or a decision making, um, that the burden of responsibility. How how have you managed to, to cope and deal with that? Especially, you know that was on, that was like phase one of a, a three phase and tiered career. Uh, how were you able to cope in phase two and phase three, or or was it just suppressed?
1: It was just suppressed. Uh, we compartmentalized and we and we keep all of our loss, all of our regret, all of everything because the job is so important. And as long as we're still doing the job, uh, we are completely functional human beings. But uh, once you, your body knows, your body knows that it doesn't have to suppress anymore. And uh, within days of my retirement, um, things that I had done in my career, People that I had lost, people that I had killed, um, started coming to me, and uh, and and it it. That's a conversation for another day, but uh, but I almost didn't make it. I I almost didn't make it.
0: Yeah, I'm going to end the podcast there because he, here's what I believe in, and um, I'm short on time because I'm on a time hack. But I will never do the short version, the 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 clickbait uh, short uh, version of this. Um, I'm I'm going to do the longhand version of this. So what I'm going to do is coordinate with Chuck, and uh, uh, you know he's he's uh, dislocated from uh, Arizona, uh, but through technology, uh, I'll do the Q and A, and he could audio record. But I'll insert the questions because uh, honestly, Chuck, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about because there's so many segments of your career. I mean, you had a impact on me. I, I talk about you behind your back for the last decade because um, you had a significant impact on me. I mean. Uh, outside of obviously being a, uh, a great leader and a great operator in special operations with a, a ton of experience. Um, he's also one of the best practical technicians and teachers I've ever known. Um, and I, I know you got a, a, a shooting company and, uh, we don't have to get into details, but can you highlight uh, some of the platforms that you're on? So people who are interested in, in, in finding you, uh, can find you.
1: Yeah. Um, guys, I, I would welcome that, uh, you guys check out my YouTube channel. My company is press check training and consulting. I have a, uh, Facebook on Instagram and a YouTube that are all press check consulting. I also have a a wonderful community on Patreon. Uh, the buy-in is whatever you can afford a buck, whatever. And that, uh, I do content monthly for my patrons. I will do a three to five hour live Q and a, uh, at least once a month. Normally I try to do it twice a month and all of my patrons' questions are answered. Uh, I set up threads on Patreon where you can ask about AR-15, Glock, whatever, and you ask me a question and I will, on a a live video forum, I will answer your question um, on that. So uh, my patron is patreon.com backslash Press Check Consulting. You cannot search for me because apparently I'm a gun guy. So the, the Patreon uh, search engine won't, won't find it. But if you type in backslash uh, Press Check Consulting, uh, you can find my Patreon page. But I do, uh, I do regular videos and sound bites from those live Q&As, uh, questions that I answer that I think are really relevant and will provide people that are out there searching for knowledge, uh, I will take those and edit those into 5-10 minute videos and I'll dump them on my regular uh, Press Check Consulting YouTube channel. So I invite you guys to come get it. I'm all about um, giving back the knowledge and paying it forward to the next generation of, uh, of individual that has volunteered for the profession of arms. I am retired. But my job is part of my therapy for uh, finding out what what I do now that I'm that I'm not a, a commando anymore or whatever. So
0: yeah, I appreciate that, man. You got an Instagram as well. It's at Press Check Consulting, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, and we'll highlight all that in the uh, notes. Um, you know, it's an honor. To have you in this tent uh, uh, With another buddy of ours um, Look, I know after the military uh, We were all searching for a purpose, man But you found it, man I, this, You're so inspirational Your stories You're, you're a good communicator And uh, the next generation um, That's up and coming That are, you know, striving for that knowledge And they, don't, they didn't have the access Like we had it from people um, Real people And the fact that technology allows it to spread, um, you're just doing great things, Chuck. And thanks for coming on the podcast, man.
1: Man, I really appreciate you uh, having me on here.